We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, and if you want to open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, that's where we're going to settle in this morning, Mark chapter 11. You know, there's a popular meme online. If you don't know what a meme is, uh, it's basically when they take a picture of something and they put some words over it, and it's uh, supposed to make a point, and it's supposed to make you laugh. And one of the popular memes out is uh, called the you had one job meme. You had one job. And they take the phrase you had one job and they put it over the picture of somebody failing miserably at their one job. So here's a few examples. Here's this first one. You had one job. This person had one job to uh, pave the road there and right door school. Maybe it's a little pop quiz for students on their way to school to make sure that they, they catch the spelling error. Look at this next one. This is a bricklayer or stone layer. You had one job. Now, how many of you are OCD enough that that's going to bother you the rest of the day? You're going to, you want to stop right now and pray about that slide. This one would drive me crazy. You had one job. Um, get my cheese on my fish, right? Like, <laughs> you had one, one job. And then, uh, before we show this last one, this is actually one of my own creation. I'm very proud of this. This is my own meme. I made this next one. I was at a candy store out in um, the Casanova area, and they had a special chocolate of the day called chocolate buttercream. But they chose the most oddest place to make the abbreviation. And so I took a picture and said, you had one job. (laughs) Chocolate (laughs) buttercream. Shockingly, it's not selling well. (laughs) If you're anything like me, you tend to get frustrated when someone has one job or seems to have one job and they don't do it right. Maybe it's your barista who can't ever get your coffee the way you want it. Well, in this story that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 11, uh, Jesus has the same experience. Someone's not doing their job, and he has the exact same, or at least he seems to have, the exact same frustrated reaction that you and I would have, not just once, but twice. It's actually, what we're going to look at this morning isn't one story, it's actually two stories. It's a story inside a story. It's kind of like a story sandwich. Um, And we're going to look at this, and to help us make sense of this story, which is confusing for a couple reasons, we're going to actually look at this passage, we're going to lay it out, we're going to study it together this morning in three acts. So if you like plays, we're going to go through it in three acts. And the first act is this, the fig tree that had one job. Act one, the fig tree that had one job. Beginning in verse uh, 12 of Mark 11, let's read. It's in the ESV. On the following day, when they, they being Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he, being Jesus, said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the tree, and his disciples heard it. The first act, the fig tree that had one job. Now, about three times in the last five years, I've had the privilege of flying out west and speaking at either a conference or a church in the state of Washington. And every time I've gone out there, and I actually really like it up there in the Northwest, anytime I've gone out there, I've flown into Seattle. My very first trip out there, I flew into Seattle, but the speaking engagement was in Yakima. Now, Yakima, besides being fun to say, is on the opposite side of the state. It's on the east side of the state. And so I landed in Seattle, got into my rental car, and drove two hours to Yakima to speak, and then stayed there for a few days and drove back to Seattle to fly out. 
And I realized in my preparations for the trip that I was only going to have time to experience one meal in Seattle. One meal. That's like agony for me, trying to determine how am I going to invest that one meal in this city that is so well known for its food scene. And so I did all this research, and I found this one place that sounded very interesting to me, and it was called Paseo Caribbean Restaurant. And what they were famous for was their um, grilled sandwiches, specifically the Paseo Press. And here's what's on that famous sandwich. You ready to get hungry? Roasted pulled pork shoulder, smoked ham, Swiss cheese, aioli, cilantro, banana peppers, and caramelized onions. Mmm, caramelized onions. (laughs) Melted in a hot press on a toasted baguette. So I just felt like the spirit was leading me there. And so I headed in that direction. And we drove all the way from Yakima to Seattle just so we could get to this place before it closed so that we could eat one meal in Seattle because I had to fly out early the next morning. And it was hard to find. We finally found it. There's no parking. It's all street parking. We're driving all over looking for street parking. It's a very popular area. We finally find street parking like a mile down the road from the Paseo Caribbean restaurant. We get out. We park. We walk to the restaurant. And we walk into the restaurant just in time to hear this. We're out of bread. They just ran out of their baguettes, and they wouldn't serve anything because they only were serving sandwiches. I was a little upset. I was, I was a little irritated. I feel like maybe I was like Jesus in this story, looking forward to something. You know that disappointment of making the effort to go somewhere only to discover that what you went there for is no longer there. Maybe it's getting in line at Black Friday and not being in front enough to get that you know, $400, 70-inch television. Maybe it's going to a movie theater and finding out that it's sold out or that the only seats that are left are in the front row where you don't want to sit. Maybe you'll make the mistake of trying to go to the new Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. Don't do it. They're not open. It'll be one of the most disappointing moments of your life. When these things happen, we react in ways that we're frustrated, we're irritated, maybe like Jesus here, hungry and angry. We have a word for it, hangry. So is Jesus really upset here? Is he throwing a fit? Is he having a pity party? Is that what's happening in the story? Well, it's unlikely. And the reason why it's unlikely is for three reasons. Number one, we already know that Jesus can endure hunger, right? He went to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and did not eat. So Jesus can endure some hunger. The other thing is that we know that Jesus, although he was tempted in every way that we were tempted, he never sinned. He's not enslaved by his appetites like you and I are. We are easily enslaved by our appetites, whether it's an appetite for food, an appetite for power, an appetite for pleasure. We're easily ensnared and enslaved. Jesus never was. But the other reason why we know Jesus isn't just throwing a fit here is because this story is about so much more than the fig tree. Don't you have that sense already? It's about so much more than the fig tree. So what is happening here? And I think one of the fairest questions to ask when you read this passage is, Is Jesus even justified in being angry? Did you notice that little phrase where it said, it wasn't in season? It wasn't even the season yet for the tree to bear figs, and yet Jesus gets angry when he sees all these leaves and no figs. This really stumped me for a while, and I was reading this book called Jesus the King. It's a study of Mark by Tim Keller, and he has some insight that's very, very helpful and kind of broke open the text for me. I want to share it for you. He said that Middle Eastern fig trees bore two kinds of fruit. As leaves were starting to come in the spring, before the figs came, the branches bore little nodules, 
which were abundant and very good to eat. In fact, one of the other things I discovered in my studies is that one of the things that makes the Mid-Eastern fig tree peculiar is that it, ha- it actually blossoms. Those nodules actually come before the leaves. That's, I guess, very unusual. I don't really know because I don't study this stuff, but the nodules come before the leaves, or they can. So travelers would walk through, and they'd like to pick off these little nodules and eat them as they made their journey. If you found a fig tree that had begun to sprout leaves, you knew there would be nodules there. But... If there were none of these delicious nodules, then you knew that something was terribly wrong. It might look okay from a distance because the leaves had emerged, but if it had no nodules, the tree was diseased, decaying, and dying inside. There would never be fruit. Growing or growth without fruit was a sign of decay, and Jesus is simply pronouncing that such is the case here. So here's what's happening. The fig tree has the appearance of health. From a distance, it's got these nice leaves. It's got the promise of a little snack. But when Jesus got closer, when he looked closer, when he saw that there were no nodules, he knew there's something wrong on the inside of this tree. It's dying. It's decaying. There's no life. And there's no promise of life. And there's no chance of life. And so this fig tree had one job. And its one job was to bear fruit. And it wasn't doing it. And Jesus isn't happy. And he curses it. Okay? Act one. The second act is this, the temple that had one job. So act one is the fig tree that had one job, and the second act is the temple that had one job. So Jesus walks away from this fig tree, and the disciples have his words ringing in their ears, and we come to verse 15. It says, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple. This is Jesus has already come in. He's already had his great entrance into Jerusalem. He's already rode in on a donkey. We kind of skipped over that text. So this is his passion week. He enters the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? He's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. Is it not written? My house, my temple shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you... Can't you picture him pointing his fingers? But you have made it a den of robbers. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus loses his temper in consecutive verses. This should make us kind of sit up and take notice. I'm sure his disciples thought, maybe we need to get some anger management class, classes for Jesus here. Jesus walks into the temple and he's angry just moments after seeing the fig tree and being angry. Well, here's the thing that maybe you can miss in this text. Jesus was already thinking about the temple when he saw the tree. And how do we know this? Because look at verse 11. We didn't read this, but verse 11, which is right before the fig tree story, says this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And then it says, on the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. Okay? So before he saw the fig tree, the night before he saw the fig tree, he went into Jerusalem and he looked around the temple. And Mark records very clearly that he looked at everything. So here's Jesus comes in the temple looking at everything. He's, he's seeing if this center of Jewish religious life is fulfilling its true purpose, its job, if it's doing its job. And its job is to lead people to the true worship of the true God. And not just to lead the Jewish people to true worship of true God, but to lead the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to the true worship 
of the true God, and the temple is not doing its job. It's not. And then Jesus sees the fig tree the next day that by external appearance should be bearing fruit, but upon closer examination, it's dying and decaying, and all of a sudden, he decides to use that fig tree as a memorable object lesson. But ultimately, it's not about the fig tree. It's about the temple. It's about hollow religiosity. Jesus found the temple not doing its appointed job and then sees a fig tree in the same condition and sort of makes it into a object lesson. That's what's happening here. The temple had one job, to be a place for all the nations to worship God. And when he walked in, it said in the text that we read that he entered the temple. Now, when you entered the temple in that, in that time, the first place that you entered into was called the court of the Gentiles. And this is where Jews and non-Jews could come together and worship. And this was a space that was supposed to be specifically designed. It was in God's heart first that the Gentiles could come and know him. And they created a specific area around the temple where the Gentiles could come together. But here's what was actually happening in that area. Number one, when they came with their foreign currency, the Jewish people would make them exchange their currency for their currency so that then they would say, if you want to buy stuff to make sacrifices to God, you have to use our money to do so. And so they would exchange foreign currency for the, for the shekel or whatever they were using in that time. Here's the thing they would do, though. They would add on a little fee. It's like a little ATM machine. You know, when you're trying to get money out of an ATM machine, it's not from your bank. And they're like, we're going to charge you an extra $3.50. Is that okay? It's like, what am I going to do? I need cash, right? Like it used to be a dollar. Now it's $3.50 they're charging you. To get... Same sort of deal here. They're using their foreign status against them to profit. The other thing that they've done is they've marked up the cost of the animals because when they came to worship God, the way that they worshiped back then was by sacrificing animals, doves and different things. And so they traveled from faraway lands. They couldn't bring their own animals with them. They didn't have the right animals to sacrifice. So they would get to the temple and they set up this sort of market in the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship God and they were selling them this stuff but at a hiked up rate. Sort of like when you stop on the thruway and all of a sudden your Big Mac is like twice as expensive, right? Because they got you. You can't go anywhere else. You don't have any options. Same deal here in the temple. And then ultimately what they were doing is they were filling up this court. They were taking up all this space that was designated for Gentiles to come and worship and filling it up with different things and ways that they could do in order to make a profit. And Jesus sees all this and he flips his lid. And he says, he starts just tearing the place up. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. That phrase, den of robbers, that the temple had become a den, a, a place to retreat to, a place to be comfortable, a cozy place, a place to sort of um, comfort oneself, a den for those who were stealing from others, both literally stealing from them financially, but also stealing spiritually from them the space that was supposed to be provided for them to encounter Yahweh. Now, when Jesus says this, he's quoting the Old Testament. 600 years ago, God told the prophet Jeremiah to go and stand in the entrance of the temple. And Jeremiah stands in the entrance of the temple, and this is what he says in verse three of Jeremiah chapter seven. The Lord says, amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, what is that about? Here's what most people think it is. The mention of these words three times here is, in a, reference, is a reference to the fact that Jews would appear in the temple three times a year on the high holy days, the feast of the Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the feast of the tabernacles. 
So the bare minimum was three times a year. It's sort of like going to church on Christmas and Easter nowadays, right? So they would go just three times a year, and they would say, because I've gone to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, I'm good with God. I've done the bare minimum. I've done what's legally required of me as a Jewish person. And God says, don't trust in those deceptive words. You're lying to yourself if you think that's how this works. And then he said, if you think you can just keep the tradition and nothing more, you've missed the whole heart of what it means to be my people. And he goes on to rebuke them in Jeremiah 7, not just for their waywardness and their evilness, but also, this is interesting, he rebukes them primarily because they don't care about justice. He says, you're devouring widows and orphans. You're taking advantage. You're using your power in a way that's manipulative and to advance yourself. You're oppressing the refugee, the traveler, the foreigner. And here's what Jesus is basically saying to the people. You don't care about what I care about. I care about the widow. I care about the orphan. In that society, they had no rights, no power, no status, no advocate, no voice. I care about the traveler, the foreigner, the refugee, the person who's been forced out of their home. God is saying, my heart is for that person. He's saying, and you are not for them. You don't have my heart. You don't care about what I care about. And so he rebukes them. And then in verse nine, he kind of ramps it up and says this. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. These are strong words, right? And he's saying to the people, you think you're safe because you're keeping up the act and keeping up appearances, but I'm the Lord, and I see everything. I see it all. You can fool others, but you can't fool God. And this is everything that would have gone through the minds of the people that day when Jesus quoted that verse, because they had that whole book memorized. They knew exactly the context from which Jesus was quoting, so they, they understood the full weight and implications of Jesus' words here. So what is the connection between the tree and the temple? Let's go back to the tree for a minute. The fig tree is ultimately an illustration. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor on two levels. On one level, it's a metaphor for the nation of Israel. If you look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, multiple times the fig tree represents national Israel, okay? So it's a metaphor for national Israel, but on a more personal level, it's also a metaphor for any individual who honors God with his or her lips, but denies him in their heart. His or her heart is far. In other words, it's the person who looks good on the outside, they got the appearance together. They walk into church. They, they do their part. They put a little money in the offering. They sing songs. They do all the right things, it seems like. But if you get a really close look, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. They're deceptive. They've lost their purpose. They're dying. There's no fruit. Now, we have to answer a question. What do we mean by fruit? I think our natural inclination, if you're familiar with Scripture, is to think about a list that Paul gives us in Galatians 5. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't apply 
We do need that sort of fruit in our lives. But in this context, that's not what Jesus primarily means. What does he primarily mean? Well, think about fruit for a second. Most fruit has seeds in it, right? There are seedless fruits now, especially ones that can be sort of created in labs. There's fruits without, fruit without seeds. But most, most fruits have a seed in them or a seed on them. In fact, that's sort of a biological definition of a fruit. It has a seed. What is a seed? A seed Within a seed is the power for what? More fruits, multiplication, reproduction. The power within the seed is for more fruit. And I think what Jesus is saying here when he sees no fruit on the nation of Israel and no fruit, fruit on my life and no fruit on your life is this, that the fruit of our life is not just the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of our lives is reproducing ourselves in other people. It's a reproducing thing. It's a reproducing of our lives in the lives of others. It's, it's also making room for the nations with our lives and with our time and with our talent and with our treasure so that they can encounter Jesus. Fruit in this context is living for other people and pouring your life into other people. And this is our mission statement here at the church. You heard Jason say it earlier that we would make disciples that we would help our friends find and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. Make disciples for the glory of our God and for the good of our community. And so what Jesus is saying in this context, what is frustrating him, what is causing him to lose his cool is, I have people who don't know how to reproduce themselves and other people. And with their lives, they're not making room for the nations. They're living for themselves. It's hollow religiosity. The question this morning is, are we making disciples? Are you making disciple? What does it mean to make disciple? Basically, it means I want to help you see Jesus. I want to help you know Jesus. You can, you can be discipling somebody who actually is, doesn't know Jesus at all yet, helping them to see Jesus. You can be discipling somebody who already knows Jesus, helping them grow in Jesus. But who are you pouring your life into? Who are you reproducing yourself into? This is what it means to bear fruit. So the first act is the fig tree that had one job. Second act is the temple that had one job. And then we get to the third act, which is the people that have one job. The people that have one job. Let's finish our story sandwich. Uh, In verse 20, it says this. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, same fig tree, withered away to its roots. Yesterday, standing strong, standing tall, beautiful leaves, no fruit, but not in danger of dying immediately. Today, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered it, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. The people that have one job. Now, when I was studying this text, and this may not hit you like it hit me because I've been sitting with this all week long, that phrase, withered away to the roots, withered away to its roots, it really bothered me. It really clung to me. It really haunted me. To be withered away to your roots means you're of no use anymore. You're dead. There's no hope for you. You're dead to your core. And this morning, this should give you and me pause, and we should say this, God, not me. Not my life. Not my church. Not us. Let us not be withered away to our roots to where we are of no use and there's no life in us. And then Jesus says to Peter, have faith in God. I think his response probably surprised the disciples. What does faith have to do with cursing this fig tree? Here's what Jesus is pointing out. 
His point is that they should trust God to remove whatever hinders them from bearing fruit for him. That's the whole point. Trust God to remove whatever is hindering you from bearing fruit from God. And so this morning, the answer is not for you to go and do more work and try to figure this out on your own. The answer is not try harder. The answer is trust deeper. Trust, put your faith in God that he can cause in you the fruit and he will remove whatever is hindering. Jesus goes on to say, if you say to this mountain, get up and be moved and cast in the sea, it will happen. Is he speaking literally? He's not. He's speaking metaphorically. Moving a mountain was a metaphor used over and over in Jewish literature for doing what seemed to be impossible. And Jesus is saying, what seems to be impossible, you might feel like, how can I ever reproduce my life in someone else? I got too much brokenness in my own life to pour into someone else. I'm not bold enough. I don't know people. I've tried and it's, it's, it's not worked well for me in the past. And you're hesitant and you're not sure about pouring your life in other people. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, have faith in God. Don't have faith in yourself. Don't have faith in that person. Don't even have faith in the strategy, the approach, the process. Have faith in God that he can remove what seems to be impossible. We are the people that have one job and ready, for, ready here's our job. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Place our trust in him so that he can cause us to bear fruit, the fruit of changed lives, ours first and then others. We exist for the nations. When God chose Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I'm gonna bless you. Why? So you can be happy, fat, and dumb? No, I'm gonna bless you so that you can bless others. And through you, I'm gonna bless the nations. For all people, for all people, for all nations, my house is to be a place of prayer for all the nations, for all of clay, for every community in this area. This is supposed to be a place for them. We exist for the nations We exist for all people to know God's love. Now, let me close with this. Where do we find the motivation to do this? Where do you and I find the power to live for others and to live a life that's worth pouring into other people? And this is what I want to say to you. We have to look to the tree and we have to look to the temple. We have to look to the tree and we have to look to the temple. When we look to the tree, we are reminded that Jesus took something from us and for us And when we look to the temple, we're reminded that Jesus gave something to us. Let's talk about the tree. When we look at the tree, we're reminded that Jesus took something for us. Remember in the story, the fig tree is decaying, dying, and after Jesus gets done with it, it's under a curse. Well, what about you and me? Dead in our sins, under the curse of the law. But Jesus volunteered to carry a tree to walk to a tree, to be nailed to a tree in our place, to take the curse for us. So here's what it means this morning. Jesus doesn't speak a curse over you. He speaks blessing over you. He speaks the final word over you. And it's the word of love and blessing and forgiveness and salvation and new hope and new life and new chances and fullness of life both here and forever. In Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by how? By becoming a curse for us. He put himself on the tree, allowed himself to become a curse because it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what you and I deserve, but Jesus went there. And when we look to the tree, we remember he took something for us. He took something from us. But then we also have to look to the temple. And when we look to the temple, we're reminded that Jesus gave something to us. Now in John chapter two, we read a similar story to Mark 11. Jesus is in the temple and he's cleaning house. These are probably actually two different accounts. John 2's account is early in his ministry and Mark 11's 
is towards the end of his ministry, which means Jesus probably did this twice, which you would think they would have saw him coming the second time. But in John chapter two, it's a little bit different. This time he has a whip with him. He takes a whip and he starts clearing over tables and knocking over tables and he says the same things. And the Jewish people are so furious and they say to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us that you can do these things? Prove the authority on which you can come in and say this temple is not in order, I'm going to put it in order. And Jesus gave them the weirdest answer. This is probably the hardest thing for them to understand that he ever said when he walked the earth. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they're like, what? It took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. And verse 21 tells us, but he was speaking about what? The temple of his body. Jesus in John 2 takes a whip to the physical temple to make room for the nations. But only days after this story in Mark 11, soldiers take a whip to his physical temple, to his body. Why? To make room for the nations to make room for the nations, to make room for you, to make room for me. There's no way to the Father. There's no way to the Father but through the Son. And Jesus Christ is the true and better temple. He is the way to God. He died so that we could live and so that others might find that same life through us. Come on, this is not just a life for you to contain. This is a life for you to give. This is a life for you to share. And in John 12, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he wasn't just talking about his life. He was talking about your life. He was talking about my life. And he was saying, you're called to do the same. Fall into the ground and die. Die to self. Die to selfishness. Die to living for yourself. And find life. And bear fruit and make room, and do your job. Be a people for the nations. Have faith in God. Let's pray together this morning.